Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 16th, 2018, and my guest is psychologist and author Charlene Nemeth. She is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Her latest book is In Defense of Troublemakers, The Power of Dissent in Life and Business, which is our topic for today. Charlene, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. This book is about decision-making, in particular how our awareness of what others say and believe how those others affect our own decisions. Let's start with the power of the majority. How is my decision or opinion affected by knowing what the majority believes or if there's some kind of consensus? Uh, That's probably the most powerful phenomenon in social psychology, in all honesty, is that – you know, back in the 1950s, even uh, the classic studies by Solomon Ash uh, had shown that uh, even when you're making judgments about things that have uh, uh, factual evidence right in front of your eyes, even when they're things that you make zero mistakes on, if if you're uh, making judgments alone, such as uh, uh, you know which line of three is equal to a standard, or is this blue, or is this green, or anything in which there's truly a factual basis, and uh, and where people literally make no mistakes, what will happen is that as few as three people who agree on an erroneous answer uh, can actually get you to agree with them contrary to what your own senses tell you. And you're often very – you're unaware of it. Uh, I, can, I can go into the specifics of the whys if you want, but um, basically that – those studies in the beginning had enormous impact in the field, and it's one of the few studies that has been done in over a dozen countries with essentially the same results. I mean, there's enormous power in the judgments of a, of a majority in terms of shaping our judgments, what we think is accurate. Uh, and it's obviously a business model for many, many companies who rely on, uh, on the opinions of others, particularly in great numbers in order to sell products, make you think of a – um, you know, something's true even that isn't. I mean, think of the fake news. You say it often enough, and if enough people agree in your sphere, uh, you start to become unsure of what you know and what you believe. And it just has enormous power, uh, which we see in every place, in groups and in organizations, and uh, even in all these experimental studies that have, as I said, have stood the test of time. What's strange for me is I, I'm, and I'm, of course, I may be very unrepresentative of the average person in these experiments, but I tend to be kind of a contrarian, uh, not mm-hmm. kind of. I'm a contrarian. I tend mm-hmm. to be automatically skeptical of what's popular, what, quote, everyone else thinks. Uh, aren't there a lot of people like me who are, who are actually going to go the other way, who are not going to be swayed by the majority of the so-called consensus? I th- – they may be fewer than you think, or at least most most of us who think we are contrarians, myself included. Uh, I mean, it's the reason why I studied this all my life, and I, my colleagues, I can guarantee you, would attest to the fact that uh, uh, <laughs> you know speaking up is not, is certainly not always so uh, welcomed. But I think, though, that um, it, it it partly depends on 
on the situation as well. Um, and it, I think it also depends to some extent on whether or not it's an issue about which you have conviction or, or uh, deeply held views as opposed to something where uh, you're not so sure. But I really do believe, though, that it's uh, it affects all of us regardless of how we view ourselves. And, it, and the main reason, I think, is that we're unaware of doing it. Yeah, is sure. that many times we do so habitually and uh, if, if I can mention, just because I find it slightly humorous, but I often will show it, a very, very dated um, uh, episode of Candid Camera. You're probably too young to remember it, but I certainly remember it. No, I it. remember Candid Camera. Do you? Okay. Yeah. And, but there was, there was one segment that I often use in courses. It was called Facing the Rear. And basically, as you know, Ellen Font used to kind of do experiments in the street to show human, human nature, essentially. And in one of them, he had... Uh, Three Confederates, you know, people that were asked to do this who uh, were in an elevator, and then this one innocent person kind of walks in. Anyway, the bottom line is that after the doors close, all these people are turning uh, in a different direction, one, you know, turning to the rear, for example, of the elevator. And so the doors will then open, and you'll see that the innocent person has also turned to the rear. And it's because there's an assumption that if they're all doing something, it must be right. There's something I'm missing. But it's not something you kind of think out and calculate. So you see this guy turning around, and okay, and that's what's funny in a way. But then it, the thing proceeds where even if they – it was a, a day when men wore hats. But uh, even when uh, they uh, take off their hats, he takes off his hat. And he looks puzzled, and he's looking around because he doesn't really know why he's doing what he's doing. Anyway, without going into all the, the specifics of the episode – any class you show it to, even, you know, decades later, this is, they are just laughing, roaring on the floor. Because who would do that? Well, at an intellectual level, yes. But the laughter is because they know oh, basically they doing that. <laughs> there's, a, there's, you know, there's a recognition because you identify with this guy who, when you think about it, this is in the face of even real evidence because it isn't just a matter of they're doing it, so I think it's right, so I'll do it. When that door opens, he sees they're facing the wrong way. Namely, that's not where the door is going to open. And yet he continues doing it. And, and what I love about it is that it sort of captures in a humorous human way essentially what that research all shows. Namely, how blindly we follow, how, un- how uh, unaware we are of what we're doing. And yet the fact that we do it even despite physical evidence to the contrary. Now, Alan Font's not a social scientist. He's an entertainer, the host of Candy Camera and the person who created it, but he doesn't show us the clips where the people didn't turn around because that's not interesting or amusing. But what you're suggesting is that that's rare, uh, that most people subconsciously even follow the majority or follow the consensus. And I want you to speculate a little bit about why you think that's true, uh, either evolutionarily or for whatever other reasons. I think we all recognize that that there's a certain wisdom of crowds that we're drawn to and that if, quote, everyone's doing it, there must be something to it, as you suggested. Anything more you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, actually, I do, because it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's at one level at the heart of one segment of the book. What most of the research trying to find out why, I mean, some of it done by interviews with people afterwards that were pretty in-depth, but more done by even experimental follow-ups in which you can 
actually, uh, you know, change some of these reasons. But what it comes down to is that, number one, is that there's an assumption that truth lies in numbers. It's what you were talking about, the so-called wisdom of crowds. And, uh, you know, we could go into that if you want, but the fact is, is that numbers are only better than the individual, namely there's wisdom in the crowds only under certain circumstances. And one of them that's quite critical is that they need to be independent judgments. Namely, if you've got a bunch of people, but they're all hurting and following each other, that's like equivalent to the judgment of one. It is not a a group of independent judgments, which does have value and power. Uh, It also assumes that they each, that that the task is something that they have some knowledge about. So if I'm going to... You know, if you want to know, for example, I've always, who, I've always liked that 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 caveat because uh, some people seem to think it doesn't matter. You just you just average them all out, and it comes out to the right answer. I'm a little skeptical when people are totally unaware of what's going on; they're not yeah. knowledgeable. Well, many of the studies, when you think about it, I mean, if you look carefully, even at the stuff that the the books on wisdom of crowds talk about, there's like, you know, estimating the number of balls in a jar or something yeah. of that sort. Well, everybody's got some knowledge. I mean, it, but if if I were to ask, like, uh, um, you know who? Uh, you know who's the Nobel laureate known for the trans- finding the, uh, the transuranium elements? You know, for example, a lot of people wouldn't know, and it wouldn't matter if I asked fifty people and they gave me a name. Yeah. Uh, you'd ask somebody, for example, who understood chemistry or who heard of Glenn Seaborg or whatever. So, all I'm really getting at is that there majorities can be correct, but they're not necessarily correct. The real concern is, is that when they're wrong, we still follow them. Yeah. And we do so in part because we make that assumption that truth lies in numbers. So, so as an aside, it concerns me a little bit, the books that tout that, have, have you believed that somehow you should believe in it? Because I think it's a problem we have anyway. We start by assuming there's truth in numbers. And all you need is for some you know, people to basically come out and basically tell you that uh, you should trust that and not trust your own judgment. And that's exactly what I argue against. Because what we need is independence of judgment, which means that if you choose to follow them after assessing the value of what they're contributing, that's great. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently right about being a contrarian as opposed to following the majority. The question is whether you're reflective about it and you make a considered independent judgment. Well, I'm at it, though. The second reason, sorry, I'll go on, but I'll stop shortly, is that the other reason, which is a powerful one, is that people fear being in the minority. They fear being the uh, the odd man out, the, the old adage of the, the nail that sticks up is going to get ha- hammered down. They fear reprisal and they fear rejection. And so what happens is, is that sometimes this isn't even conscious. It isn't even a considered no- uh, notion that I'm not going to disagree. They actually don't even know that, that, that they have a different opinion, in part because the assumption that the truth is in the numbers and they're missing something coupled with the fact that that's a more convenient truth to have, namely to join them and not to be the odd person out. Those two conspire to be very powerful reasons for following error. It seems to me we've been talking a lot about tribalism in, in recent episodes, and it seems to me it's a, it's a part of this is a variant on the desire to make sure you're in the tribe. You're in the out, if you're an outcast, if you fail to meet the norms of the tribe, you – you're going to lose access to the tribe's benefits. You're going to you risk, as you say, reprisal, uh, rejection, quarantine, uh, and just uh, being lonely. And so I think there, there's a very powerful impulse we have to go along, to conform. And it's um, 
many times it's a good impulse, right? It, it keeps families to, in, in the tribal setting. It keeps families together. It it keeps marriages together. It keeps religions together, communities of various kinds, which is you kind of accept the norms of the group. And there comes a day sometimes, though, when you wake up and go, uh-oh, what have I been doing? Uh, and and the, you, you're forced to confront the fact that you've blindly been following these norms. And again, many of the times, that's great, those blind following, and it economizes on time. You can't sit every minute thinking, should I do this? Should I not do it? Which way should I face <laughs> on the elevator? What kind of, should I wear a hat? What kind of hat? All those decisions in much of life we make unconsciously, which is um, really helpful most of the time. But when we're acting politically, when we're making business decisions, investment decisions, personal life decisions, uh you probably want to pay a little more attention, and, and I love the, this idea that runs through the book that you really have to be aware of this because it's working on you sometimes when you don't – maybe always when you don't know it. I, I, yes, I, I mean I mean that's, that's exactly right. I mean as you were talking, I mean it's clearer that you, you don't have to uh, – you know, be authentic and discuss everything, uh, and you know, re- you know, say everything that's on your mind. I, I mean, I, I, th- I think to some extent, even some of the the recent uh, conversations about you know, which I'm simp- I'm in sympathetic with the with the uh, principles. You know, to use a Dalio quote of uh, of transparency, but you don't have to say everything that's on your mind every single moment uh, without any regard to uh, the impact it's going to have or whether you're going to succeed or the other considerations. I think, though, that, you know, what I'm sort of really arguing about, though, is that so often we really, number one, we we aren't aware of when we're just following blindly. Uh, And I think that you need that wake-up call. But I think the second thing is, is that People are afraid to speak up. I mean, much for the reasons that you're saying. So that we're, what happens is we're not honest with one another. And uh, I mean, it's easier said than done. But there are many cases. It doesn't even have to be something dramatic. But when you, but let, let me just for a moment kind of go to maybe the more dramatic uh, kind of things where people are uh, kind of recognize the importance of this is that, you know, you have planes falling out of skies, which is an illustration I use because somebody doesn't speak up or doesn't speak up forcefully. You know, they kind of note something in passing as though it's a a paraphrase rather than, you know, we're running out of fuel and that plane fell out of the sky. You know, you have uh, surgeons can operate on the wrong limb and, uh, you know, you can have members of a surgical staff who they may not be absolutely sure, but it looks as though, uh, say, a piece of equipment is malfunctioning. Well, instead of speaking up and saying, hold it, stop, you know, this may be a problem. Uh, now, again, you have to, you're, you're weighing that decision. Obviously, there be, there's some uh, urgent situations in which, uh, you know, you have to be quite sure. And so and that's still going to be a calculation. But nonetheless, is that there are many, many reports of uh, people who had a differing viewpoint who never spoke up. And catastrophes occurred. You see them in business with mergers, you know, even the old AOL uh, Time Warner one, you know, was done in a matter of a few months. And there was strong dissent from people within the company, uh, some of whom happened to be correct, at least with hindsight. Um, but they weren't consulted. They had no opportunity to express it in that particular case. But the point is, is that there's sometimes truths out there that go unexpressed because people are afraid of it. And there are studies that show that even like 70% of people report not uh, speaking up about a problem in a company. 
and uh, well, yeah, it's perfectly. It's not a great way. Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly <laughs> rational on one level, which is well, if if they're not saying anything, if the surgeon, who's much smarter than I am, much more experienced than I am, thinks that's the right leg, I must be the one that's wrong. So there's a certain natural self doubt there that, in the face of quote expertise. But a lot of it's like you said, and I think this is the more interesting point. I, I think a lot of it is fear, just pure fear of that's the remark coming back to you like, what, what, what are you thinking? Of course, yeah. we're, you know, we're doing the right leg. Right. Uh, and, and I think the, the lesson here for managers and for families and for friends is to react graciously to negative comments or constructive criticism. That's very hard for us, right? We don't like to be oh. told we're doing the wrong thing. And the more we bark back at the people who criticize us in those settings – the more we create groupthink, which uh, is, as you said, it's the wisdom of one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's several. I had several thoughts actually as you were talking. I mean, because, uh, um, I mean, first, let me just when you commented on expertise, it's, it's interesting because you sounded almost as though you trusted that. Where well, you I try to put it in. I try to put it in scare quotes. Very subtle. I don't know if you, you didn't, maybe you missed it. Because <laughs> oh, no, I'm kind of a skeptic about expertise generally. Okay. I was just going to say, I, I certainly have been. Because, I, you know, I live in a world where everybody presumes expertise because, you know, and they'll trot out all their degrees and this yeah. and that and the other thing. But uh, I did jury consulting for a number of years at one point, And the thing I was often struck by is, because uh, judges always think they know more than jurors, you know. But sometimes I've often struck by the fact that common sense is not so common. Yeah. And that many times, you know, people can see through things where you can see judges who are very articulate and can create a, a brief that looks very brilliant. But the fact is, is that it represents a very single perspective you know, uh, his own opinion. It's just that he's more artful in the way he conveys it. And so, you know, I've learned kind of long ago um, uh, not to trust, essentially, uh, things of status and prestige, or at least to question it. And uh, so, I I mean, that falls in the same camp as as the assumption that truth lies in numbers, uh, because what happens is that we, we just assume that what we know or what we see can't be true. And, uh, and and we tend to discount it, which is like the worst way to make a decision, you know. You know, a variant on that is when you go to a movie that everyone's raving about and you're just struck by how bad it is. And uh-huh. I walk out of that mood that, and it happens to me, not infrequently, but occasionally, right? And, and part of it is, well, I'm not like everybody else. But a lot of times I'm thinking, did I miss something here? Did I was I in a bad mood when I watched this movie, or, <laughs> or what were those other people thinking? Were they just they got swept up? Uh, and I'm just struck, you know, after going to certain movies, reading certain books, it's like, gee, this didn't work for me at all. It's not well, I didn't like it as much as they did. It's I didn't like it. I actually disliked it. And how could they have raved about it? And you wonder how much were they swept along by that consensus? majority feeling and how much am I, you know, maybe misreading what its real value is and I maybe I need to see it again. And occasionally I have. I've done and gone back and watched a movie a second time that was raved about or read a book uh, or parts of a book that were raved about that I couldn't get into. Sometimes it's different, but often it just um, doesn't speak to me, just the way it is. Yeah, I, I have that experience often, particularly with restaurants. 
you know, that are raved about. At San Francisco, that's all we do is eat, basically, you know. But when I, I go and sometimes realize that not only is it overpriced, uh, but it's uh, remarkably mediocre or or it is just novel for the sake of being novel, even though it isn't a particularly uh, pleasant experience, you know. So, I mean, you can go through all kind of things. I think, though, that, you know, sometimes it, it really is a herd. I mean, there there's there's something to be said for a, pl- a place that, because they, they work on it in marketing to, uh, it, it, it has a kind of a cachet. It has uh, the buzz, if you will. Yep. It's where all the young, the hip people are going. Yep. I mean, a- Apple, you know, was great at whenever they were launching a product. They'd have long lines out the front. They turned it into a happening. And so people it's would brilliant. go just to kind of be part of the crowd, part yeah. of the latest of whatever it was. And I, I and you're an economist. I mean, clearly not. But but even you know a lot of the bubbles are attributed to kind of herds on the way up and herds on the way down. And so those notions of contagion, and uh, even the difficulty of being a contrarian, even in those situations, because you think if you're a contrarian, if you're right, you're a genius. You think, and if you're wrong, you're an idiot. You know, with big reputational fallout. But sometimes, even if you're right, there's a quick way to view you reputationally as somebody who was got lucky, for example. Yeah, hard to know. And so I'm just saying is that it has costs in many different fields being that contrarian. So I, you know, I don't underestimate for a moment the the difficulty of it. Well, let's let's turn to dissent because that's the troublemaker part of your book, and the part that. Um, being, again, myself a little bit of an outlier, not much of a majoritarian <laughs> um, uh, in terms of my outlook. Uh, I've gotten used to being something of a dissenter. And uh, dissent is is a fascinating piece of your book. Uh, you argue that dissent, even when it's wrong, uh, helps our decision-making process. Explain that and talk about dissent more generally. Okay. Um, well, I think that's the powerful message in all honesty because most of the time – you know, people think, well, dissent is fine because they think, well, we're tolerant people and everybody should have a voice. But the reality <laughs> of it is, is that we, you know, myself included, uh, we're not immune to the, the human tendency to get irritated uh, when someone challenges a view that we believe. And uh, we don't mind them saying it, but we don't like it when they persist. And so what happens is, is that you're tolerant for a short time. And then what happens is, is that you start to both think and many times speak in rather derisive ways toward them. I mean, again, it's sort of like when I was teaching uh, classes and this sort of thing. I said I'd sometimes do demos and I could just bring people up practically at random and I'd just plant one individual ahead of time who would uh, only took a, uh, a what I knew would be a, a very differing viewpoint. It was like on a uh, how to deal with a juvenile delinquent. Anyway, so they'd have this discussion in front of the class, and when um, the one individual espouses what I knew was going to clearly be a deviant viewpoint, uh, what happens, and you can see it dramatic. It's one of those things that you don't take a risk in doing this demo. The, phenomenon is so powerful that it works all the time and it doesn't matter who's up there and what it does is supports the research findings which now the students will start to pay attention to because they witnessed it and the first thing is is that all the communication gets directed at the dissenter like why do you think that you know uh, how can you believe that when we all whatever have you you know whatever so everything zeroes in on him the same thing that i report like in the film of 12 angry men when henry fond is the only lone hand going up for not guilty everything goes in with him with the opening caveat of there's always one okay but what happens as it as it persists you start to see 
derisive behavior. And so even when you do the demo in class, you'll find that the other individuals, perfectly well-behaved college students, and they will start to first, you know, by innuendo and then more directly suggest that the guy's either, you know, stupid or immoral, one of the two. Yep. Uh, how could he have this particular position? And there's really pressure on him. And uh, and so, and then what happens is that at the end, even if I have them all turn around, I say, like, you know, essentially if the group had to be smaller and you had to exclude somebody, would you vote for X, Y, Z? So you think, like, maybe there'd be a bunch of hands admiring the Sloan dissenter. <laughs> and there are very, very few. Maybe well, he's almost ruining everybody. It. He's makes ruining, it clear ruining it for everybody. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent because I think maybe I didn't address the question you were raising. So bring us back if if. uh, Well, I just just, we start off by saying that a dissenter bears a cost. Uh, You know, they get treated derisively, sometimes violently, sometimes they are uh, shoved aside or ignored. I think I probably told the story in Econ Talk where I voiced uh, some support for shopping at Walmart at a dinner party with a little bit of of humor. And the reaction from the person I was talking to was to stand up and say, I don't have to listen to this. And she walked away. Uh, Not, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you're an economist. How would that work? It just isn't people's Mm -hmm. normal reaction is an enormous wall goes up. Uh, They're not interested in hearing a contrary opinion. Most people aren't. There are exceptions, uh, obviously. But so the first thing is that the center gets uh, derided, criticized, insulted, and usually treated with some anger, as you point out many times in the book. But the other mm-hmm. part that's interesting, we didn't, you didn't, I think, say enough about is how it forces the group consensus to to evaluate, reevaluate, and to confront right. it, even though they might not say so publicly, which is even more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They might publicly just continually to resent and dismiss the, the the minority opinion, the dissenter, but inside there actually something's going on. So talk about how okay. a dissenter improves the process. Okay. Because, um, again, what happens, you're bringing up a lot of thoughts. It... Uh, <sighs> The one thing first in terms of it being private is that many, many studies we did, particularly in the early days, show that, you know, we'll do mock jury deliberations or things of that sort. And uh, what happens is, is that they won't move even one inch in public to the dissenter. And uh, it, it uh, I mean, sometimes I'd be asked for combat pay, actually, by people I put in in that position of being the dissenter. But what would happen, though, is that if you ask them later, and uh, you can't ask them very directly. So if you really say, did you change your mind? It'd yeah. be no, no, no. You're still an idiot. And so you can have all the you know, great questionnaires you want, but it still comes down to the fact that they dislike him and think he's ridiculous, etc. But what happens is, is that if you're at even slightly subtle, so if you say, well, you know, supposing he asked for twice the amount in, in uh, compensation, what would have been your, you know, your judgment then? Or if you is that say, for an injury, uh, well, it's an injury it, case, right? Yeah, yeah, this is a personal injury case. This is the one I'm thinking about, you know. Or if you say, if you alone were the judge, you know, rather than you know a member of the the group operating as a jury, what would your decision? I mean, those are like variants. You'd think it wouldn't differ at all. But more importantly, is you give them then totally new personal injury cases where the facts are quite different and everything else and ask for compensation. And basically what you find is that there's noticeable attitude change. Namely, they have actually moved in the direction of what the minority judgment was, the one that persisted over time. Okay, that's a, that's a caveat in that because to have any impact as a dissenter 
you have to be consistent over time. It isn't a one-shot thing and then you're out of there. You really do have to continue, which means you're taking the risk. You're going to be the subject of derision. But that's where the impact is. But don't expect it to be public or you're going to be applauded for it. You will be derided. And at the end of it, but at the end of it all, there's noticeable attitude change, but it occurs at the private level. And that's the hard part about this message is that you can be standing up and taking the risk, but you won't necessarily benefit from it in the sense that people will think better of you. And you, many times people will not even be aware of the fact that their opinions have changed. What I think is more important in terms of the research we then we're doing more in the later many years of, of my career, is taking a look at influence at a different level. Namely, not whether or not you win as a dissenter, whether or not you've changed their mind, but whether or not you've changed the way they think about the issue. So the reason I use a film like 12 Angry Men is not so much for what most people see, which is the ability of a dissenter a lone individual, Henry Fonda character, to win, actually, to change the minds of the others, but rather that it changed the nature of thought about the issue. So what I pay attention to, and again, it's more of a dramatic vehicle in, in 12 Angry Men, but you start to see the mechanisms by which, some of which have to be strategic, of keeping the discussion open, because otherwise they'll just sort of stop talking to you and, and, and essentially yell you, to yell you out of the room if they could. Uh, But what you start to see is that they they start to look at, say, the downside as well as the the upside of their own positions. They start, for example, before it was like, we've got two eyewitnesses, what's there to talk about? You know, done, out of here. And they start to kind of question whether that eyewitness is accurate. And then they start to notice and remember other pieces of evidence that start to call it into question. And in one case, they recreate the scene only to find that it couldn't have happened as the witness described it. Now, that's a dramatic vehicle, but it parallels what we did in many different studies, which is that what we tried to do is to try to look at a lot of the elements of what constitutes good decision-making and things like... When you search for information, do you search for information on, say, both sides of the issue hmm. as opposed to favor one? Uh, or is your recall selective? Or in, in other studies, how, you know, do you consider alternatives as opposed to just ruminate logically a lot about the one position, the yes or no? Uh, or uh, – I'm trying to kind of, sorry, I'm just trying to kind of scan, you know, some of the different studies. But essentially what you're looking at is when you, if I use one word for it, it's divergent thinking. Is that instead of a kind of a linear problem solving thinking is that you start to think about the ups and the downs of each position. You start considering alternatives you wouldn't have considered otherwise. You start in problem solving, we've got studies where you utilize multiple strategies and to great effect because their performance is much better. But the bottom line of it is, is that the mind opens and it opens because it's challenged. And so we can kind of think that personally people don't want to hear it, but if they do have to hear it, and it persists over time so that if it's in a meeting and they can't just sort of walk out and tell you to go home from your dinner party, you know, that you describe. Uh, what happens is, is that that challenge just changed the nature of discourse. And that's why what all these studies show, and I think for me the most heartening finding, uh, 
was that whether or not they were right or wrong is that that kind of thinking is the kind that was stimulated by the challenge to the majority opinion. And that's in some ways surprising because we see its value when it's right. I mean, who wouldn't argue that the guy shouldn't have spoke up when, the, when, the, when they were running out of fuel in the plane? Uh, but what's a harder thing for people to get their arms around, but I think is most important, is that you profit from that dissent even when it's wrong. Because even if you're not totally aware of it, even if you don't want to give him credit, is that study after study shows that you think better. You actually are wiser in the kind of way you search for information, assess it, and think about it. And that's the beauty of it. So it really suggests that you shouldn't just tolerate dissent, that you should welcome it. And I'm paraphrasing Senator Fulbright, which is a quote I happen to like. I've got certain authors that I love quoting, but that's one of them. It reminds me of um, long ago, we kind of talked guest Ed Lemer, who said man is a pattern-seeking storytelling animal. And I think uh, this also is in the work of Nassim Taleb. It's a common problem we all have. We have a linear story. We cherry-pick the data that makes us confirm that story. And we're not really interested in looking at other parts of the story because we have a nice story. Don't ruin it. And when the dissenter comes along and says, are you sure? But what about this? It forces you to imagine that there's more than one story. And I think that's really important. It's important for, again, I think our personal decision-making. And what I found in interacting with people, both when I use this technique and I hear, feel it hear it used on me how powerful it is someone will make a, a bold claim uh so-and-so is the all-time leader for doubles in a season in in baseball and i'm thinking i don't know, I don't know if that's right you know I'm th- I, I think it's earl webb i think it's 67 i'm thinking to myself when this person says this other person sometimes i just say are you sure i don't say oh that's ridiculous it's earl webb mm-hmm. instead i say are you sure that those three words are you sure it's remarkable how quickly people climb down from their, their overconfidence, and, and I feel it in myself. I'll make a claim, and part of the, the confidence I'm exuding is just pure conversation, right? And in a meeting, that can be very powerful. And someone will say, are you sure? And I realize immediately, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not so sure. And I, I just think it's just opening that lid just a little bit does make a difference. I, I agree, and, and that's a, a very artful way of um, <laughs> of, 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 of dealing with it. Uh, but also, I think you're you're honest enough that uh, when people say, "Are you sure?" you take that seriously, and at least ask yourself whether or not you you have full confidence or there's an area of, of doubt. Uh, you I mean, can some, double down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people, as we well know, we see it every day. Is that for a lot of people. Uh, and are you are you sure would be kind of like, yeah, of course I am. You just don't know what you're talking about. Or, right. you know, it could have, have any kind of a reaction to it. And I think that if you if you do that, I think to to an honest person who's listening, I think it does open the door for conversation. And that's that's an enviable way to uh for it to occur. I think in, in a lot of settings though, and particularly ones where the decisions are really important. Um, you're not really asking whether they have a doubt. You're you're really telling them that you think they're wrong. That there's yeah. that there's something else that's true, yeah. and and you can even say I'm not a hundred percent, but this is what I believe and thinks true, and here's why. And you know, however you want to phrase it, or that you're wrong, but that there is an authentic 
difference of opinion. And I think that's the challenge that stimulates thinking. You see, you're opening a door to open-minded people who really worry about whether they're being accurate. I think for a lot of people, I hate to say this, but I think for most people, they they have to be challenged frontally in a way. It doesn't mean you have to be rude or angry or, dis, or certainly not disrespectful, but you have to be clear. And it, it is when there's an opposing truth that someone really believes that I think that's where the challenge comes for really rethinking your own position for wanting to search for information to find out which is accurate, for considering other options. I think it requires, I think there's power in that. It's like, I often think about, you know, like martyrs. You can think that they're dying for something that you could, can't imagine or may even seem wrongheaded to you. But the fact that they are that convinced and willing to pay that price, you don't just dismiss it. And it is certainly food for thought. And many times in ways that you're not even fully aware is a, is a stimulant for reflection, for searching for other information. All the things that I think are extremely important in good decision-making or in a vibrant society. Now, you mentioned authenticity, and in the book you point out, this also I found very interesting, that being a devil's advocate is not enough. You can't just say, well, what about this? Have you ever thought about this? It's the persistent, consistent authentic statement of an alternative truth that gets people to think and just merely stating an alternative view and particularly if you make it clear, well, I don't really believe this, but I just have to play devil's advocate to make mm-hmm. sure we consider all viewpoints, that that makes a difference. Talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, to me, devil's advocate is one of a, a bunch of things that have always kind of bugged me because they seem like an intellectual game. As though everything is about transferring of information. And if we think if we can kind of intellectualize it and be logical about it, that we're going to kind of uh, arrive at truth or that we're really going to consider multiple options because we're such well-meaning people. And we are well-meaning. It's not that our intentions are bad. The thing is, I don't think people operate that way. They may try for a while, but they don't seriously reconsider something they believe. And they can pretend, I mean, it's not total pretense. I mean, they're sort of like trying, but it's, it, one level is sort of like lip service. It's sort of like I, I make it akin to an intellectual game. And I always had that sense about devil's advocate. So for years, whenever I taught groupthink, and there was always the, you know, the antidote to groupthink, one of them was devil's advocate. And they'd been teaching this forever in business schools, for example. And I just never believed it. And so finally, I think particularly because a couple of students really got interested and wanted to work with me on it, then we did a couple of studies, and then it got that garnered a fair amount of attention, or at least it garnered uh, a lot of discussion and rethinking, okay, even if people were pushing back because they were kind of married to uh, – You were uh, dissenting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, well, also, I mean, they, they were married to that um, um, – that antidote, uh, I mean, not just, not just academics, you know, who might like it because it was sort of, you know, treasure territory for them. But even um, in many ways, I think even businesses is that they were searching for a way to get some of the benefits of dissent, at least as well as they understood them. But it was usually thinking that maybe there was some truth in there someplace. But always they wanted to do it where we sort of stay still friendly and we're morale's high and and we're kind of nice to each other and we're backslapping. And 
and so what happens is that if you can use a device where you know, you you don't create the conflict and irritation, but you still gain some benefits. I mean, that looks like a win-win. It's just that it doesn't really work. Is that it? Uh, it least, at least it certainly doesn't. You know, maybe better than absolutely nothing, where you're just racing totally to to you know consensus. But it, it at least in our studies, it doesn't work anything nearly as well as authentic dissent. Just because, in fact, you know someone's role playing. You know that they're kind of like. Um, uh, you know, what if, or, or you know, it drives me nuts if you watch the, the news and you see people, the interviewers will off, often kind of say, uh, well, let me play devil's advocate. Or even if they don't say that word, they'll, they'll say something akin to, well, some people might say, it, it's still a variant on the same thing. They aren't just saying, what about this? Or, I, 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 you know, I don't agree with that. It, it, instead of it being an authentic discussion, it's more kind of couched that this is someone else's opinion or this is a role playing. And so what we're doing is we're engaging in sort of an intellectual exercise. That doesn't really stimulate the kind of thinking, though that an authentic difference does. And as I said, you, people always have in their mind this authentic difference has to be you know, rude and impolite and confrontational and all of that. What it is, an authentic difference in which you're clear about what it is that you believe and you're willing to say so, knowing full well that you'll probably pay a price for it. And there's, there's power in that. It's, I guess, it, and I think there's value in it, I guess is also what I uh, you know, really believe. Well, there's integrity too. I- I think it's really um, it, it long term. There's an incredibly corrosive effect of going along with things you think are wrong <laughs> in meetings and family gatherings, whatever setting it is. Um, you know, I know lots of. When we th- I think of a lot of nonprofits that I'm been involved with, been on the board of, been in meetings of, and uh, like you said, people want to get along. They're going to see these people. They might be going to synagogue with these people, or to church, or to whatever communal activity they're doing, and um, they know they're going to see them for the next X years. You don't want to be seen as the person who is like disrespectful or rude or just didn't want to go along. And so it's very hard to raise those hard questions in those settings. I want to talk about style for a minute because I don't think you do this too much in the book, and it seems to me to be important. And I, as an economist, I want to I want to focus on Milton Friedman. For a long time, Milton Friedman was a lone voice uh, in more than one area, but I'll just pick one. Uh, he believed, due to with his research in 1962, I think, that inflation was uh, typically caused by monetary policy. That was an which is now widely accepted by most people, although the last few years have been a little bit funky given that the given the Fed's behavior and people debate about that. But for the last 50 years or so, uh, he won that battle and he started off virtually alone and was derided and made fun of and mocked. And, uh, of course, my, you know, my joke is he always missed all the good cocktail parties, too. It wasn't just <laughs> right. He, he paid a social price for it in his, uh-huh. in his daily uh-huh. life. Uh-huh. And if you watch film of him. Uh, he also was a contrarian on many other things. When you watch him discuss controversial issues with people who are clearly hostile to his viewpoint, he always smiles. And he's mm-hmm. never disrespectful. He's never crude. He never mm-hmm. or rude. He never raises mm-hmm. his voice. Mm-hmm. He never shows anger. And I think – and I wrote about this. There's a chapter in my book, The Invisible Heart, where I describe of a different dinner scene than the one I mentioned earlier where I have the character – it's fiction, but I have the character – uh, get into a shouting match and you know be basically have to leave the dinner party 
And I think when I was younger, although that dinner party never happened the way I just wrote about it, but there were times when I would be angry and I would state my position with vehemence. And I think deep down I was thinking, this way they'll think I'm really – I have these strong convictions, so maybe it's worth considering. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that's not fruitful. In fact, that makes them think, this is not a nice person. I don't want to be on his team. And my view is, is that the lone dissenter who, who's polite and who smiles and is uh, pleasant has an advantage. And I don't know if that's – you agree with that. It doesn't necessarily consistent with what, what, the way you've described it in our conversation right now or in the book. But it seems to me that the dissenter who wants to have an impact has to keep his or her cool and stay polite and respectful of the people and just state their, verms, their views firmly and, and with, with confidence. Is that – what do you think of that? I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, there's a reason that the the last chapter in my book, for example, I sort of felt compelled uh, to have a se- uh, to make it what this book is about, and then a big section what what this book is not about. And part of it is I realize is that words conjure up images, and many times the image of a dissenter is one you know with fists raised and loud voice and uh, and you know all the things that people kind of say you should do to look confident you, you know is it you know beat your chest and and uh and and, and those things uh, are are not what dissent is about and it's really not even what the point point of the book is about really it has to do with authenticity and conviction and yes it does require consistency over time and you know that's going to make you perceived as unpleasant or it, it certainly will invoke uh, dislike, but it isn't the way that you're behaving. In fact, you're, I think you're exactly right that it's maladaptive, is that, um, you know, if, if you're rude, it's almost easier to dismiss you because then it's much easier to attribute it to your personality yeah. and to essentially ignore the fact that you have a position about which you have conviction. You can show conviction uh, without yelling. You can certainly show it without uh, uh, rudeness, but I think what's absolutely essential, particularly when you start thinking about functioning groups that have, as you point out, many times have to see each other over time, is that I think the absolutely there are two two words and we that they're hardest ones to, to really get in a company, but essential. One of them is respect. I think that no matter how much you disagree. The notion that you, you respect the fact that it's something they believe, even though you strongly disagree with it, that's a very different attitude than resorting to name-calling, for yep. example. And again, we see this in the political d- discourse on many different levels of kind of reason judgment that doesn't compromise, it doesn't back off from what they believe, but who shows basic respect for the other person. And they're not only their right to say it, but even their right to believe, think differently, which is probably the, the ultimate freedom. And so I think that becomes very important. And again, if I kind of go back to the 12 Angry Men example in a way, is that Henry Fonda never loses his temper. He never resorts to even what some of the members of the majority who are armed with their hubris feel that they can, you know, uh, dish out. Um, but they're... But it, it, it is not, though, it, showing respect doesn't undermine the sense that you have conviction. Uh, in fact, I think it augments it. Yeah, and no, I think that's well said. I think it's exactly right. I'm, let me take another example, and I, I want to use it to criticize my uh, general outlook and get your reaction to it. 
another dissenter I feel like right now who's getting a lot of attention for that dissent is Jordan Peterson. And I find – he was a guest on this program, and I find his – I find his his writings and his videos and other things provocative. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's made me think, and I wrote an essay about how I – what I've learned from interacting with his ideas. And he's very lonely. He's he's – He's increasingly joined by large groups of people, but in his in his speeches, but he st- staked out a very um, lonely position. He states it with total confidence, uh, politeness. He he doesn't raise his voice. He's respectful, uh, more or less, of the other side. You could debate that, but in in one on one conversation, he he never results resorts to insults, and it it grabs your attention it's an incredibly effective way for a lone voice to to operate and what i want to say critically of myself is that i emphasize on this program humility and the importance of saying i don't know and the willingness to be open to other to other viewpoints uh as as the saying goes strong opinions weakly held i think would be a decent description of my general mm-hmm. outlook um and yet, I wonder if the overconfident people of the world make an important contribution because it takes courage to go out on the limb. It takes courage to be that lonely voice standing athwart history. I'm going to be talking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn soon on this program uh, in his book In the First Circle. Solzhenitsyn, Milton Friedman, uh, they, st- they stood and took enormous intellectual beatings for and sometimes physical beatings in the case of Solzhenitsyn for being that dissenter, and to have that courage in the face of that dislike requires tremendous, I would think, confidence. And so I wonder sometimes about the cost of my humility and the value of being overconfident. Ooh, uh, I mean, you're you're a wonderful interviewer because they're they're nuanced and complex questions. I mean, in all honesty. You know, I've thought a a little about this. I I probably would use the term that they aren't so much confident as they are, as they have conviction. Well said. They are stating something that they really have, they've thought about and really believe. But that doesn't mean that they also don't, at a very deep level, know, or in fact are sure that they don't have the full answer, that they haven't considered every possibility or every contrary view to what they've come to believe. And so I think you can be both. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I, I think your phrasing of the, uh, uh, you know, strong opinions weakly held, the weakly held is a, is a willingness to know in your heart and sometimes even to acknowledge um, that you might be wrong, that, that you have still much to learn but this is really what you believe, given that you've given a lot of thought and, and you're quite convinced that, that this seems to be accurate. I mean, given what you're capable of. But it also means you're aware. It's like almost what I was referring to earlier is that being aware of the fact that you're human beings means that we fall prey to the things even that we study. So we can talk about embracing dissent and then we can get so annoyed at somebody. It doesn't matter if you're studying it. I mean, I remember Danny Kahneman talking a, a, a lot you know, more personally of um, – and he studies bias, and he's subject to biases all the time, yeah. you know, and strong ones, you know, type of thing. I mean, it doesn't remove you from the 
the, the humanity of what it is we're talking about. I guess the other thing, because also it's a person I happen to be very fond of, is Carl Weick in organizational psychology. But and everybody quotes this, but many pe- people don't attribute it to him, which is, by the way, a problem in the field to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, his phrase is that, um, you know, argue as though you're right, but listen as though you're wrong. And, and that, to some extent, captures doing both of those, I think, is getting close to what you were sort of suggesting, is that you, you are arguing as though you're right cause with the strong opinions, but you listen as though you're wrong. And that's because you kind of know they're weakly held and there's so much to learn. So I don't think that, they're, that one removes the other, I guess. That's a fantastic, subtle um, distinction, which I – which I actually find deeply comforting. I don't, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, this is not a joke. This isn't, this is not an intellectual game for me. This is not like, oh, I'm pretend I'm humble. And I think it's really important to be humble. I think it's an important part of being a good human being. And yet I worry about this. And, uh, you know, we live in times where it's very unclear what direction the country's headed, what the right direction is. Uh, and I don't want to, if you're not careful, humility leads to paralysis. Well, we just don't know what to do, so you don't know what's right. But as you point out, you still have to have conviction sometimes. You have to make a decision often in the face of imperfect information. In fact, always in face of imperfect information. And you have to rely on, on your, your judgment. And I, I think the, the deep lesson of your book is that the rush to judgment, particularly in groups, is uh, – is something to be very, very aware of. I, I, there's a great a quote you have in the book. Uh, I think it's the he- subheading or something. It says, group decisions, often in error, never in doubt. <laughs> I think that's just a great line. And, yeah. and when we le- leave the meeting, having made that decision, we're all high. Yeah, we, we did a great job. We, came, we did the right thing. We came to the right conclusion, whatever it is. And being aware of the possibility that you're wrong is a great thing to be reminded of. And I think that's right. what, one of the things your, books, your book does. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I think even as a child, I still re- – it's funny how I've been thinking of quotes lately that kind of registered with me from way back when. And uh, they sometimes take on new meaning when you have enough experiences in, yeah. in life. But I can remember always being told whenever I thought about the term humility, which we were always taught was important because, you know, pride was the biggest sin type of thing. And, uh, but I remember the line that uh, humility is truth. Namely, it is not false modesty. It's not saying I don't know what I'm doing or I'm stupid when I know I'm not stupid. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, I, you know we don't need we don't need to go into it. But I spent three very happy years doing interviews with five Nobel laureates in physics and chemistry, and I this is a number of years ago now, so my memory's a little bit faded. But um, I remember the thing I was so struck by uh, is that two hundred one. And these were the individuals who had really done something, okay? They were not just good <laughs> physicists or good, you know, but our lives, our, our world had changed. Sure. And I would hear colleagues of mine say something like, I sat next to X or Y and, you know, he couldn't be bothered, you know, talking to me. They're so arrogant. And I thought, well, you know, I, <laughs> I actually had a, an unkind thought about whether I'd talk to this colleague of mine. But nonetheless, <laughs> I, my experience couldn't have been different is that contrary to almost – all my colleagues, uh, they were the most, in, at one level, humble people I've ever met. They were, they didn't tell you they weren't, like, smart. They knew they were smart. But, you know, it's the sort of thing, like, with Charlie Towns, is that if you're thinking about the cosmos, 
uh, or, you know, issues related to, you know, the prime mover, the origins of the universe, or you think of yourself in terms of, I mean, if you're smart enough to know how small you are in the context of history or the cosmos, <laughs> you, you, you don't get so full of yourself. Do you know what I mean? There was, uh, but it was, a, back to the, the notion that it was, it was truth. It wasn't a false humility. What they, It just was an awareness of how, small, how little all of us matter at some level and how frail our understanding is at any given moment. But that shouldn't stop us from essentially speaking an authentic voice. Uh, because as you say, if you, if you don't, there really is a kind of a, a paralysis where everybody gets so confused, nobody knows what, what they know. Which is why I go back to even those early studies is that if I know this is blue and it's not green, and I can tell you, we've done studies. People, my colleagues never believed anybody would ever call them green, for example, and yet they do. And so you begin to, to realize that, uh, I mean, how ephemeral all, all this is, but how serious it is that we, at some point, we get ourselves in a pretzel where we're so worried about getting along and sort of when we're articulating a judgment, we're half thinking about what are they thinking of me? Could I be wrong? Um, you know, they're not going to like me. This is a stupid strategic movement or you know, whatever it is. You get all that. You, you can't even think anymore. And you don't even know what you believe. The scariest part for me in all that study about like the shaping by majorities, which we haven't gone into, but how cults use it in any ways, is that they shape the mind so that it literally is not aware of the bubble in which it exists. And terrible things happen as a result of that. And so the worst part is that when we don't know what we know. I mean, you can look at, somebody can lie to you five times and you can call and double check every fact and you can find out they're lying. And they're lying again and again and again and again. And yet sometimes, you know, when you don't want to believe that, you can still kind of go back and, and want to make excuses for them sure. or whatever. But at some point, you know, why we lose the ability to have clarity about what it is we know, even when we've done due diligence. I mean, I was actually running into this sort of recently where I've just recently had to take a stand actually at the university because there was some very inappropriate behavior I felt. And I, I felt it led a lie to all the rhetoric and ended up um, – you know, part of me thought, God, I don't need another battle in, in my life, you know, kind of thing. But then I thought, you know, you can't preach this stuff and talk about mm -hmm. what you really believe and not act on it. Yeah. And but you but I know, I know that you know, you're gonna stand up and you're and you're gonna see no action. You're gonna see irritation with you. And some days you just don't feel like it, you know. But uh but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Good for you. I, I just want to mention a, a quote that I know you like quotes. So my favorite version of that, uh, the humility of great scientists is uh, it's I've read it from uh, from Taleb in a he attributes it to a Venetian proverb, the farther from the shore, the deeper the ocean. And for me, that really sums up as I get older and as I get farther from shore, I, I know a lot more than I did uh, when I was 25 and fr fresh 26, fresh out of grad school. And yet. Um, somehow I feel like I know a lot less. And I, I think that's a sweet, sweet uh, feeling that comes with age. If Maybe if you're lucky. If maybe The alternative is probably nice, too. Getting more and more confident <laughs> as you get older. Uh, but, but at least for me, it, um, it's the way it works. But I'm glad you mentioned the campus thing because I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the things that disturbs me deeply about America today, one of the things is the low quality of political discourse and the lack of respect on both sides that really – 
distresses me. But the other thing is the uh, failure on campuses to always encourage dissent and conversation. And it seems to me it's the essence of education. It's the underlying theme of your book, really, is that you can't think clearly if you're not open to the possibility that there's a different viewpoint. And to me, that's what a great university is about. It's how Western civilization, civilization generally goes forward. Uh, I only said Western because it's the one I know, but is better than others. But that's the way civilization advances through the back and forth conversation between great ideas. At least I like to think so. So what do you think of the current state of um, of campus debate and, and the willingness of universities to squelch it? At least that's the way it seems to me. Ooh, um that's a a very heady issue. I mean, do you mean to turn the recording level, off for a few minutes? No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I might. I might want you to. Um, there's a. I think a lot of concern and certainly discourse. Uh, uh, you know, again, I, I've been at kind of leftist universities my whole life. My first job was University of Chicago, for example, and I was there from '68 to '73, and it was during the real turmoil of '68. A colleague, you know, beaten up and nearly killed in his office uh, for basically because he was uh, on the news a lot uh, backing the anti-Vietnam protests. So, I mean, I I really – those social issues were really in our faces in in those years. And the thing is, I often look back to those days, though, by the way, Russ, with uh, – maybe it's a sign of age. But I look look back on them with enormous kind of warmth because people cared enough that they would – get up at almost like town meetings and argue vociferously about every topic imaginable. But there was an engagement and there was an authenticity. And of course, it would make you nuts. And you had a sense that, God, you know, I wish this rhetoric would calm down. But I have never in my life experienced a period uh, and a location where I found that I thought so much, where I really had a sense of growth in terms of my own convictions. And, you know, then kind of via went, you know, Virginia and British Columbia and whatever, and then ended up at Berkeley. And I've often kind of been aware of the fact, though, that it's very difficult for students who have different political persuasions than the, uh, than the ethos, you know, say for, you know, young Republican students or whatever, to feel comfortable in classes. And they, they're afraid of speaking up, basically. It's the same thing. It wouldn't matter if, if it was a, a, you know, a, a, a liberal student at a, at a very conservative college. It would be the same thing. The main thing is that you're the odd person out. Yep. And, there, and so you do see this reluctance. And so you have to go to a lot of trouble in order to invite their speaking up and to really make clear that you welcome it and you want to hear it. Otherwise, you can't have an honest discourse. I mean, how can you talk about, uh, you know, uh, women's issues, for example, if, if uh, somebody who has a contrary view doesn't at least engage you it's so that the dialogue is better? And let me say that it, I think it's not only good in the sense that it informs people who, who didn't uh, hear that position – but that again, back to that line, it gets them to think. But I think the beauty of thinking is that even if you end up believing exactly what you did at the start, you do it with you have it with more clarity because you've really engaged in in, in rethinking uh, the issue that you hold to some extent, almost almost blindly. I think though that you know now there's there are moves afoot to um, to bring in speakers, for example, who. Um, um, offer differing viewpoints. Now, I mean, obviously, if I had my druthers, they would engage in debate, in respectful debate. Um, uh, I think that's the way you 
you're more likely to learn. I mean, I'd prefer to be a member of that audience. I think what happens, though, is that it's much like watching the political discourse where you know where you see you don't see people engaging in dialogue you see them making their their talking points side by side yeah. and occasionally sniping at one another kind of thing and uh, which which is not what we're talking about we're talking about intellectual engagement essentially with someone who differs but i think what's happened is that you know they end up on different parts of campus they usually pick people who are particularly con- controversial yeah. who are going to you know speak to their base crazier Word. Choices, yeah. and, and so security becomes a very serious issue in an open campus. And you get a lot of people who are drawn to these occasions in part and, you know, looking to for a fight, essentially. And, and I think that that turns this whole thing into a whole different level of, of, of problem. Uh, I do think, though, that at a seemingly a less certainly dramatic level, but what I get concerned about is that I watch even faculty who they even spend their lives thinking about, you know, fairness and equality and, and inclusion and rights and everything. But who don't, you know, what bothers me is that the speech is good, but the actions are lacking. And what I watch is a, a kind of a, a, a deafening silence at wrongdoing or if... Uh, uh, you know, an unwillingness to stand up and to pay that price. And understandably, as we're talking about, you know, they're concerned about they're going to see each other. There's long range, you know, relationships. Uh, academics can have very long memories, you know, if uh, if they feel smited or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all those human reasons, but I don't see them at all immune from this silence and lack of authenticity, even about issues that they at least say matters to them because it takes a different it takes more than speech i think and that's where the dissent i, I you know i even winced at the at the title by the way because i wanted a dignified title about its courage as the image and i thought troublemaker is the pejorative way in which people think about it but the publisher was right in a way that the term troublemaker has actually had an interesting kind of an appeal where people even identify with it. I mean, just like two days ago, I saw a posting, a guy who had who was given my book uh, saying that it must have been his autobiography. Mm-hmm. He, was at, he was at some Hilton Worldwide Conference or whatever, and he's standing there posing with it against his chest, you know, pr- proud of the title in a way. And so I found myself thinking, you know, I've learned a lot from the kind of interviews and reactions of people because you never quite the, the word has such different meanings to people so ergo you know. well, I'm thinking about it's funny you mentioned that I hadn't thought about it till just now the uh, fabulous just incredibly great ad that Apple had early early on called Think Different and it got a lot of attention because it's grammatically incorrect probably right. maybe I don't know there's, there's a certain argument for Think Different but instead of Think Differently but um, what that ad was said was here's I think it's I think the opening line might be here's to the troublemakers, and mm-hmm. it, and it it just highlighted dissenter after dissenter after dissenter, and of course some dissenters are wrong, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. wrong at the time, <laughs> and they get mm-hmm. brushed aside, and others make history. You mentioned uh, Gandhi and Snowden in your book, and others we mm-hmm. haven't had a chance to talk about. Mm-hmm. I also want to mention just in passing uh, George Orwell, who had the courage to call out the communists in the Spanish Civil War, and 
I encourage listeners to go back and listen to my interview with Christopher Hitchens uh, on Econ Talk on that. We'll put a link up to it. But these people, they were incredibly brave, and the world's a different place and mostly a better place. Uh, mm. And and those nails that stick up and get hammered down pay a terrible, terrible price, but uh, they maintain their integrity, and um, they make a difference. Put a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs would say. Yeah, I mean, thank God for them. And, and of course, now, you know, even though, you know, Jobs obviously, um, you know, it's not universally loved, but no, no one questions the impact. And in many ways, um, you know, they they really admire that kind of um, independence, if you will, and that appreciation for um for, for the role of people who really, you know, stake out a different route or who, who challenge. And by the way, I should also, I should also mention to you, by the way, I just, before I forget, is that when you mentioned uh, uh, interviewing Christopher Hitchens, my son who thinks that, you know, nothing I do is all that important, is that when he knew that I was going to be interviewed by you and that you had interviewed Christopher Hitchens, who is one of his, you know, kind of favorites of all time, he really sat up. So you have made my, my, uh, family interaction actually a lot more positive oh, i'm happy to hear that <laughs> <You know? laughs> what i was going to say is that is that the, the uh we're talking about the admiration people have for steve jobs they always admire the dissenter after they're dead more than yes. they did when they were alive they get romanticized uh tremendously in death uh okay. which is uh interesting but I, I i'm glad we brought up christopher hitchens and i'm happy about your son but there's a, there's a story in your book which is which blew me away. I mean, literally, just I just could not believe it to be true about Mother Teresa. Can you tell that story and Christopher Hitchens? Yeah, well, I just uh, I'd read about it actually, you, you know, and and basically because what struck me is that um, you know the, the devil's advocate is a um, um, is a device or you know a, a mechanism uh, originated in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's uh, it's used for um, uh, when someone is being considered for sainthood. And so, you know, you go through beatification and then sainthood. And, uh, you know, kind of like my joke about it is that you don't want to find out after the fact the person's a saint and then you find out he was a pervert or something, you know. So what they had for centuries is this um, mechanism, and that's what the devil's advocate. It's an actual uh, person. Appointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah they have um, – you know, I think it's a. You know, I, I I don't sit in the Vatican, needless to say, but uh, but where the process is to make sure that someone takes the devil's advocate position, and my understanding is is that they go to great trouble to find out everything wrong with the decision to put this person up for sainthood, and they've always used it as a mechanism, much like the devil's advocate has come to be known, which is essentially kind of role-playing, namely someone tries to dig up all the dirt and, and to present it. So it's, it's at the informational level, it's seeing the negatives of this position. But what I was reading, I'd have to look up my source though now, is that at the time of Mother Teresa is that uh, Christopher Hitchens was apparently one of her great uh, critics because, and if I have this correct, is that he, he, he viewed her as less saintly, mainly because she was trying to convert people to Catholicism. And so he viewed her more in terms of someone who was proselytizing and therefore had a, a, an agenda in addition to or other than simply care for the poor. And so he, you know, from a purist point of view, or at least from his point of view, um, 
she was kind of fraudulent, if you will. I mean, it actually took on that kind of a negativity. So what I found kind of interesting when I read it is that apparently the church had invited him, and I don't know the details of exactly how much he spoke or whatever, but according to the report is that he he was asked to essentially argue uh, his position, namely that she should not be granted sainthood. Now, uh, I found that interesting because I thought, you know, people have been looking at these contrivances, the devil's advocate is a way of kind of acting as though they're considering the opposite, which I never believed in our own studies show it was, you know, is not a very good device. And I thought, boy, if the Roman Catholic Church, even after devising this and using it for so long, is actually bringing in a true dissenter whose opinions now they're going to listen to rather than someone within who's role-playing a dissenter, I thought, boy, that's that's promise for the future and an underscoring of the point I wanted to make in the book. So that's really that's really why I used it. Because yeah, I thought it's boy, of all the groups you'd think that would not bring in a real dissenter, you know, the you know, the Roman Church has never been, you know, kind of one you know, wanting to hear of, heresy. Kind of confident. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's that's such a great story. I, I hope it's true. I, I'm tempted to say, are you sure it's true? And then you might have to backtrack. But uh, but I'm going to leave that alone. We're going to look for a link to that story and find find some some source for it. Well, you've got me doing it too because I know when I first looked it up because this book has been you know in forms over over quite a period of time. I know I I looked it up at the time and I remember reading about it because it was such a great uh, you know I didn't I didn't treat it as a, a proof of concept no. but more of something consistent with it. Yeah, yeah. But I know that that I would have re- I would not have used it. I, I know I researched and it was a credible source. What I can't tell you is exactly what the source was now unless I go back and revisit it. But I actually will do that. Yeah, I will too. Uh, let's close with uh, the replication crisis in psychology, which, um, you know, your work, the former work, we didn't talk a bunch about it. it. It came up in passing indirectly, of course. But you've done many, many studies that you're drawing on for these conclusions. And unfortunately, almost by the nature of the study, they're small groups uh, because you're interested in small group decision making. And, and many studies in social psychology have struggled to be replicated with larger groups recently. And it's a little bit of a, for me, it's a, it's a, it goes way beyond psychology, of course. But it started in psychology with um, the work of Brian Nozick, and, and who's been a guest on the program. And uh, I know it's a very controversial uh, theme in, in psychology today. A lot of people push back against Nozick saying, you know, this is, we've gone too far. It's always easy. We don't know if these replications are done well. Maybe it's the original studies that are right and the replications are wrong. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And has it caused you at all to revisit some of your work and wonder about its reliability? Um, yeah, I guess the short answer is yes, I've thought about it some. I, I haven't tracked all the minutia lately of attempts to uh, to try to correct it and most of them don't s- strike me as going to solve the problem because the, I, I you know, let me start with kind of, I'll start with kind of what I kind of really believe in a way is that I used to struggle when I was very young with the fact that I could spend a lifetime doing one study mm-hmm. and essentially <laughs> That, you know, whenever you do it, you sit there and you say, well, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, what if I had older people rather than younger people? What if I had someone in, I had people in China as opposed to in the U.S.? You know, what if the tasks that they did 
in order to show performance had been a different type of task. Okay, Now, just in that statement, I could set up about six different studies, Okay, and you could spend a lifetime trying to find the which variables matter and which ones are boundary conditions. And even then, the problem is, is that if you're going to replicate exactly and you're going to change one variable, it means you have to keep everything else constant. And you never know that if you changed any one of those things or even if the the zeitgeist had changed, you you know, in terms of the meaning of that instruction. Namely, you go crazy. The bottom line is that without going into all the logic of that thinking is that I had a sense in which, you know, uh, I could end up in an asylum or, or a sense in which you could spend a lifetime ending up essentially with one, every variant on the theme of a single study, and you still don't have a full answer. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And essentially, I think what I came to terms with is that, and I really differ with some of my colleagues who really think that a study, and since it has data and since they've done careful statistics, is that it becomes a fact. And... I used to argue with colleagues about this because particularly when I do testimony, like in legal cases, when I did some consulting uh, back when, um, colleagues of mine would go in and they talk about studies as though they were facts and laid in stone. And I knew that wasn't true because to some extent I could choreograph almost any study and have gotten a different finding or I'd gotten a different variant on it. You know, it, it, you, know you, you, you could shape you know, what they're doing, what they think their task is, you know, who they, I mean, if you want to, if you're dishonest, you you can do that, okay? (laughs) And I realized that it was very hard to do well. Social psychology is very hard to do well. In part, there's still an element of an art in which you have to put together and integrate a lot of different studies. In many ways, I think for those of us, at least as we try to be responsible, we know that some studies should be believed more than others, either because we we know more about the person who did it, or you start, the devil's always in the details. You start kind of looking at how did they exactly select the subjects? How did, exactly what was the task? How did they use that term? Because they they use a term and you look at the operational definition of it, and it's, you know, cohesion means uh, they only check whether or not they liked each other, okay? And yet they're spinning it as though the word cohesion has many other meanings, but that isn't what they studied. I mean, I could go into, believe me, I know probably, you know, at least as well as most, all of the failings that you could come to. So I know how hard it is to do well. I know how easy it is to criticize each study, and I'm very aware of that. So I have an appreciation for studies that are well done. Having said that is that I think there's partly a bit of a crisis because what's come, which used to be very, very few and by rumor, are people who kind of – if you will, coax their data. I say that as a way of saying rather than pure outright manipulation or or fraudulent, uh, uh, you know, putting in data that wasn't true. There are many ways in which, you know, if you you stop collecting the data short of what you would have otherwise because you've got the findings you want, Mm -hmm. or if you, on the other side, you know, you add to it thinking, well, you could juice up the confidence level of your significant difference. You know, there's all kind of ways in which it's really hard to legislate um, ethics. And for me, increasingly, you know, when you think about that ocean being deep as you go farther from the shore, for me, so many things in life to me come down to 
uh, values, come down to ethics, come down to whether or not uh, someone is honest and whether I can trust them. And, uh, you know, and, and so you, you, you know, you, and I think that's true even in the profession uh, that you, you count on those norms as a way of guiding behavior and giving you confidence in what you read and see. Uh, and those are a little bit, I don't think, I don't think it's on a, on a large scale. Don't get me wrong. I think the ethics are still fundamentally there in the field. But you also have now, I think, a somewhat uh, scarier um, uh, development. And that's that I think a lot of academics are becoming like mini-CEOs. Yeah, and um, there are a lot of money uh, at stake. Uh, yeah, and I know people. I mean, they get grants. They're really interested in ego, and and so you, you find that people will appropriate ideas. They'll rebottle it and give it a new name, and then they cite themselves as though they're the originator of the idea. People many times, and particularly when you look at popular writers, they will appropriate even the phrasing that like one of us might use in an academic article and really not cite it. I mean, some are careful about it, but some are not. And because it, it, people don't pay a lot of attention to who the originator of the idea are. They, they are interested in whether the idea sounds interesting. And then what happens is, is that people profit from essentially being a little slippery about that. But even within academe, what you find is that sometimes – uh, which I really object to, but uh, graduate students won't even collect their own data. Data. It's like you know the professor has twenty people. I used I would never have more than five, uh, which is full time for me. Um, and uh, each of those people would have a study, and they'd have like undergrads collecting data. I said you can't have that. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They have no idea of of the rigor involved, you can't kind of just all of a sudden change a word in the instructions because you feel like it, you think you're doing, I mean, the whole thing is, it, is ridiculous. And so nonetheless, is what I'm getting at is that when you find that, that the benefits in academe often have to do with the quantity of the publications, not the quality, or they have to do with how much buzz or notoriety that it creates, you get all kinds of incentives to essentially kind of rush to seeing what differences look significant after the fact without carefully looking at whether the design has been really thought through, whether you've embedded, whether or not, if, if, it, if it didn't work out, that you can track what happened, namely where you use it as a learning experience, not just a confirmation experience. All of those things that we took for granted in terms of diligent and vigilant studies, which took us sometimes three years to do one, by the way, if you do group stuff, Okay, is that the cost benefit analysis for many people is not to go that route, but to do surveys and to treat the fact that they think they were creative as being equivalent to whether they were creative. And I'm here to tell you that almost all the studies show you that what people, when they think they're creative as opposed to seeing what they actually produce, are almost orthogonal. You know, I mean, you, yeah. you, you can't trust the perception because they confuse morale and feeling good and all of that with whether or not they produced anything. What I'm getting at, though, is that there are many kind of layers to this, but I do think that that the incentives which have gone uh, – they used to be just in the business school more than in arts and sciences, but I think it, it is, if you will, kind of eroding throughout. And the, the draw of uh, of – you know, fame and and uh, money and and all of those consequences, uh, you know, which are there throughout society, uh, have permeated it more at least than I remember seeing it many years ago. 
My guest today has been Charlene Nemeth. Her book is In Defense of Troublemakers. Charlene, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Russ. It really was a pleasure talking to you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.